Hi there, you're listening to the Trinity Community Church Podcast. TCC, a home for you. All right, how many know your problems in God's hands hands are in a good place? How many of you have screwed stuff up because things have been in your hands? Just me, some of you are like, Pastor, I never screwed anything up. That, we call that fake news. That's a lie. We screw stuff up, up all the time. Um, it's good to see everybody in the house today. I'm a little tired. Yesterday I was hanging out here with uh, 300 of our youth. Uh, we have actually our district youth guy here today, uh, Pastor Lee's here with us. Uh, they were in here bouncing around in this place. And even though I wasn't doing a lot of bouncing, how many of you know that just watching activities, you get old enough, wears you out? I was exhausted from watching kids bounce around. So consequently, if you find stuff on the floor, maybe gummy bears under the seats, help yourself. It seemed to help them, it'll help you. Uh, one of the benefits of hosting uh, the Spirit Tour uh, yesterday was uh, we also got a chance to uh, enjoy their speaker. We got a beautiful special speaker with us today. Uh, Dr. Uh, Linda Seiler, she, um, she spoke to the kids yesterday, and she's got a great message for TCC today, so let your heart be open. Give her a warm welcome. Pastor TJ. All right, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm tired, too, because you're around 300 youth, and I wouldn't even, I was like him, I wouldn't even play in the games, but just they have so much energy, and it wears me out, so anyway. Um, as you said, my name's Linda, and uh, I hail from the great state of Indiana, <laughs> and it's good to be here with you today. Bef- before I speak, like every good missionary, uh, I'm a missionary with the Assemblies of God, uh, work with Chi Alpha Campus Ministries, which is the, oh yeah, right here. The Assemblies of God Outreach to the Secular University. And uh, like every good missionary, I need to show you a picture of my family before we begin, right? So, um, so this is Boaz. That's his baby picture. <laughs> Boaz is now 16 pounds and no longer fits in my hand. Um, but he's not a real snuggler. And so five years ago when I got him, I was like, no, I need a cat that would like snuggle and nestle at night. So I got Tabby, Tabitha. Um, and she's my next snuggler. Isn't that awesome? Uh, So they are my family, the sum total of my family. I'm a 48-year-old single woman with two cats, which was never my intention. Uh, But I I missed my my, uh, prime dating years for reasons that I'll share with you in a bit. Um, But I was meditating during worship. We were singing about, um, you know, Jesus being the Lion of Judah. That's in the cat family. Um, And so cats are a good thing. All you dog people, like the Lion of Judah, that's the cat family. And when I think on Jesus and the things he had to say about dogs in the scriptures... Not so favorable, you know what I'm saying? So, not that I don't like dogs, I do, but I'm a cat person, and um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So anyway, I was the Chi Alpha director at Purdue University from 07 to 2020, Kate led a team there in in 07 to Pioneer, and uh, was there for 13 years, and then in 2020, the Lord called me to work with Chi Alpha in a national capacity, training missionaries in applied theology and culture in the U.S., and overseas, and doing training along the, the subject line of today's message. Um, if you don't know, Christ, uh, Chi Alpha stands for Christ's ambassadors, or Christ sent ones to the secular university to share the gospel. And our mission is reconciling students to Christ, helping them come into right relationship with Jesus, transforming the university, the marketplace, and the world. Because if, if you reach the campus, you're reaching the future leaders of the world. So I love being a campus missionary, love working with college students. And what I want to share with you today is along those lines of how God reconciled me to himself. 
and transformed me uh, to share the message that I have with you today. Um, by the way, this is a vain announcement. Um, because I'm a woman and there's other women in the room, um, I am wearing one earring on purpose because the other earring is in my pocket because it makes the microphone click. <laughs> so they made me take it off in between two services. So in case you're wondering, I'm not trying to be like that famous Wham singer that only wore the one <laughs> earring. Like not, I can't think of his name. It was Michael something. can't think of his name. But anyway, so let's pray. We need the Lord. <laughs> Lord, we just invite you here uh, this morning. I pray as I Open my mouth to speak, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I pray you'll encourage uh, anyone here today that might be struggling with guilt, shame, condemnation, feeling far from you for whatever reason. God, I pray you would draw their hearts close to you, that they would see your countenance, sense your love for them, and, and hunger and thirst after you in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as far as my own story of reconciliation, from my earliest memory, I wanted to be a little boy instead of a little girl. And as you can see in the picture, very boyish. I don't have a single memory of being okay in a female body. I felt like I was a little boy trapped in a girl body and I needed to change. I remember praying and asking God if he would turn me into a boy before I got out of bed that morning to go to school. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, and I got out of bed a disappointed little girl, which affected my view of God, affected my view of myself. Um, I wasn't raised uh, as, a, as a Christian, per se. We went to a, a church, a mainline denomination church, that the, my perception of the gospel through that church was that if my good works outweigh the bad, then I have a good shot at going to heaven. So if you're Mother Teresa and you help little old ladies across the street and work soup kitchens, you have a pretty good shot at heaven. Uh, if you're like Hitler and you kill people, you go to hell. So um, I remember when I was a teenager, somebody asked me, how sure are you you'd go to heaven when you die? And I had it down to percentages. I was like 85%. And they're like, really? Not 100? And I said, oh, no, no. Uh, and I told them my whole Mother Teresa thing. Like, I'm not quite Mother Teresa, but I'm not as bad as Hitler. So I think I have an 85% chance. But there's still things that I'm not proud of that I'm pretty sure God's not okay with. So not a 100% shot of heaven. I'd never heard the gospel as far as Jesus dying on the cross to pay for my sin and that I could be forgiven past, present, and future. I didn't know that. So here I am growing up as a little kid, and not really understanding God or the gospel, but some friends said there was something called reincarnation, and you could come back in the next life as something different. And so I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so if there is a God and, the, and there is reincarnation, let me come back in the next life as a boy. That was the consuming, driving desire of my life. It was the center of my life. As we're talking about Jesus should be the center. Well, this was the center. It was an obsession for my life. My parents thought I was just a tomboy. A lot of girls like to grow up and climb trees and not play with Barbies and makeup and all of that stuff, uh, which was true of my sister. She wanted to be inside with makeup and Barbies and all that. Nancy's three years older than I am, and she was just a normal little girl. But me, I wanted to be outside playing with the boys. Nancy would be imitating mom, putting makeup on and playing with dolls, and I'm outside pretending to mow the lawn like dad or in the mirror pretending to shave like dad. I just desperately wanted to be in that world of man. And I rejected my own mother despite her best efforts to mother me. She loves me. She did her best, but I rejected her growing up. I looked at her and I thought, you know what? 
you're emotional, you're weak, you're not strong like dad, and I just thought, I want nothing to do with the world of woman. And so I rejected her love, and I didn't know, but that left a vacuum in my heart for female love, feminine love, that I didn't receive it the way God designed it through my natural mother. And so that vacuum in my heart wanted to be filled because God designs it to be filled. We all need a mommy, we all need a daddy, we need that same sex parent to invite us into the world of the sex that God made us. And so I needed a mom that would invite me into the world of women so I could be a woman among women. But I also needed a, a father who would affirm me as distinct from yet cherished by men. We all need that. Well, I rejected my mother's love growing up. And so as I got into junior high, I'm... I'm or I'm sorry, grade school, early grade school. I'm very boyish, as you can see in the picture. And um, around fourth grade, I was pushed into the boys' restroom, and I saw this wall of urinals. And I was like, "What? What is that?" <laughs> I didn't know there was a way the other half lived. You know what I'm saying? And so I was like, "Oh, that is so strange." But that urinal became a a symbol of that forbidden world that I desperately wanted to be a part of. I so wanted to be a man. And from that point forward, I would begin to visit men's restrooms, boys' restrooms, pretend to use a urinal. Men and boys would walk in and out of the restroom, not even bat an eye because I looked so much like a boy. And I was like, yes, you see who I really am. This is my true identity. And so I would continue to do that even into adulthood to affirm this false identity and try to get into that false world and find affirmation there. In fact, that, that urinal became a, a symbol, a, 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 a sexual symbol, a high for me of sorts, going into these men's restrooms into adulthood. And it was an addiction I, I couldn't break myself free from. And so I knew like something about that wasn't right, but, and I couldn't tell anybody because I'm, I'm growing up in the 1980s when all this is going on. And nobody was talking about these things back then, not the way we talk about it today. And so I knew to kind of keep these things to myself. Um, around the same time, I was around nine years old, I heard about these things back then we called sex change operations, that today they're calling it gender affirmation surgery. Um, sidebar, uh, you can't become the opposite sex. Like, God designed you. He, your, your gender isn't assigned at birth. It is actually designed by your creator who knit you together in your mother's womb. And so that is set from conception. You are either XX female or XY chromosomes male. And that will not change. Even if you rearrange the skin on your body to try to look like the opposite sex, you don't actually become the opposite sex. Somebody asked me the other day, can, can somebody transition and then like have a reproductive capacity as the opposite sex? No, you can't. You become a sterile human being when you remove your reproductive organs and things like that. So anyway, I didn't know that as a nine-year-old. I thought you could literally go to a hospital one day as Linda, have a sex change operation, come out the next day as David, and you live happily ever after. I, I just literally thought that's how it went down as a nine-year-old. And so I was like, that is my plan. As soon as I am old enough, sign me up. I am going to get me a sex change operation and turn into David and live happily ever after. So I've got my little plan, and as I'm moving into junior high, and my body began showing signs of maturation, I was despising this female body that I was stuck in, and I didn't want to be a part of the world of girls who were wanting to try on makeup and date boys and do all the girly stuff. I, I didn't fit in with them, and I didn't want to be a part of that world. 
I became intensely jealous of the boys around me whose voices were changing and they were becoming everything I dreamed of being. And around that time, I discovered, to my surprise, that I was attracted to women instead of men. Now, I didn't choose that. I didn't want that. And I felt helpless to change it. And back then, there was no safe zone at my school. There was no LGBT community or club. There was no one to talk to about these things. It was an isolating experience. If you ever came out to somebody in that culture at that day and time, you would be ostracized. You would be absolutely rejected. Those of you that are older in the room, you know what I'm talking about. So I had no one to talk to because we didn't talk about these things at home and nobody was talking about them in culture. And so I thought, man, I just got to figure this stuff out on my own. So I'm trying to make sense of my reality in my head and I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I really am a man trapped in a female body then, and I'm attracted to women, that just makes me a straight male. So I should be attracted to women. So I just need to hold out, have the operation, and my whole life will make sense. So that was my plan, and I was sticking to it. I get into late junior high, and I'm thinking through the ramifications of like this decision, and how would I eventually tell my family? Uh, you can see in the next picture, as I'm in late junior high, contemplating this decision. What would my parents think? What would my sister think? What would the neighbors think? What would my grandparents think? And I'm just, I'm horrified thinking through how am I going to tell people my deepest, darkest secret? Because you can't just leave the house one day and come back the next day as David and like nobody knows. At some point, they're going to know. And I didn't know how to tell them. And I didn't have any friends at that time really to speak of because I didn't feel like I fit in with the girls. I wasn't officially a guy. I just felt like this kind of third androgynous in-between didn't fit in anywhere. Awkward, uncomfortable in my body, uh, kind of the stereotypical experience of most teenagers, right? But I really felt isolated and didn't fit in. And so I thought to myself, you know, I think I have two options. I can either have the uh, run away, never see my family again, just run away, have the operation, live happily ever after as David, and then I just never have to tell my family. Or option B, don't have the surgery, but know that it will consign me to a life of suicidal despair and depression because I'll be stuck in this body the rest of my life and I was already unhappy and suicidal. And I remember the day I was walking down the hall in junior high and I consciously chose option B because I thought, you know, this is just what you have to do to survive. And quite frankly, I was afraid that if I ran away and I never saw my family again and I had no friends, I'd live the rest of my life alone. Even though I got to be David, it just wouldn't be worth it. And so I knew my family loved me and I wanted to keep them. So I decided I'll do option B. I'll do whatever I have to do to try to fit in and play the part so no one will ever know my deep, dark secret. So as I got into high school, I was growing my hair out and trying to look a little bit more like a female for a period of time, I had a mullet, uh, which in my defense, um, I didn't have any friends to tell me that wasn't a good idea. So anyway, I'm growing my hair out and I'm thinking, you know, how can I try to pass? But it, it was becoming more difficult as an athlete who's sharing locker rooms and hotel rooms and things with other girls where my attractions were becoming stronger and they were initially aimed at older women in a non-sexual way. When I was like eight, nine years old, I'd be at a friend's house and I'd be like, huh, I, I want her mom to be my mom. I want, I want her mom's attention. I want her mom's love. I want her mom to hug me. And there was nothing sexual about it. 
It was just a little girl with a vacuum of love in her heart who had rejected her own mother and was longing for maternal love in a healthy, non-sexual way. But as my sexual drives and desires kicked in, those drives and desires got confused with that unmet need for maternal love. And it felt like I had been born gay and I was attracted to the same sex. There's no science out there that says you're born gay, there's a gay gene, any of that. It's not out there. But I, that was my experience. My subjective experience was I felt I was born that way. I never felt an attraction to a man. Didn't even know what that felt like. So here I am experiencing these desires that are becoming increasingly more difficult to resist, but I didn't want to act on them lest anybody know my deep, dark secret. So then I started thinking, okay, I need to, maybe I, I could cure myself by, by dating boys and experimenting sexually with them, and it will like awaken something that's dormant in me. So this was my bright idea of how to cure myself. So I invite this boy from my physics class to come with me to the turnabout dance where the girls invite the guys. Borrowed a dress from my sister. And so here I am standing next to my friend. Um, there, there were no sparks flying that night. I'm standing there like a football player in this dress, totally uncomfortable in my own body, but doing everything I knew to do to play the part and try to fit in. And the boys were all too happy to experiment with me sexually and awaken whatever I felt needed to be awakened, uh, you know, that was dormant. And it didn't at all awaken anything in me. It only made me more intensely jealous. I wanted to be the man with the woman, not the woman with the man. And in fact, when I did dress up in these dresses, I felt like a man dressed in drag, like I was wearing a costume. And I was doing whatever I had to do, you can see in the next picture, this dressing, like feeling like I was in drag, trying to fit in. But it, it, I just was so uncomfortable in my own body. And nobody knew what was going on behind closed doors as I'm trying to fit the part. Now, around the same time as a junior in high school, a friend invited me to a Youth for Christ outreach, and I heard the gospel for the first time. Nobody needed to tell me I was a sinner, that I deserved judgment for my sin, separated from God forever in, in hell for eternity. Nobody had to tell me that. I was walking in guilt, shame, and condemnation because I had gotten exposed through some friends to pornography at age 9, 10-ish, around that age, and I had these sexual addictions going on behind closed doors, and I felt so guilty and enslaved to those things. And I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't get free. And so I hear the gospel for the first time. You can see in the next picture, I actually got saved, started getting to know some Christian friends in a youth group. And I thought that that night when I received Christ, that all this stuff would go away. I'd wake up the next morning no longer attracted to women or wanting to be a man because if anyone's in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, you know, right? So I wake up the next morning equally attracted to women and desiring to be a man. And I thought, oh no, now I'm in a real catch-22. Because not only were we not talking about these things in the world in general, we especially weren't talking about it in youth group in the church. You know what I'm saying? So I was really isolated and alone. And I thought, I, I just got to figure out how to try to pass and fit in so no one will ever know my deep, dark secret. Now, I really did have a genuine conversion experience. I did meet the Lord, started to grow in Him. When I got to the University of Illinois, I got involved in a, a uh, college campus ministry and started reading the Bible for myself, started getting discipled. I was growing in my faith. I was learning how to share my faith with others. So I really was growing in the Lord and wanted to know Him, and yet I was living a double life. Nobody knew what was going on behind closed doors with the sexual addictions and all the things that that entails. 
And I was becoming deeply attracted to a lot of the women in the campus ministry. The more, more emotionally close I got to women, the more I would struggle with sexual attractions. And it was miserable. Nobody knew what was going on. By my senior year in college, I am absolutely miserable. This is my senior Bible study, and I'm attracted to the woman, Nikki, who's in the blue sweatshirt above me, and I just couldn't keep my thoughts straight when I was around her, and I was miserable. And, you know, you can only go so long in a life where you're lukewarm for God until you make a decision. I'm either going to go all out for Jesus, or I'm going to go all out after my sin, but I can't stay in this middle ground any longer because it's just miserable. And so I was at a conference, and I heard a speaker talking about if you're in habitual, repetitive, unrepentant sin, and you can't get free, the answer is James 5.16. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I didn't hear anything else the speaker said that day. I just knew that unless I took what was in the dark and exposed it into the light of Christ with a trusted leader, I would never get free. And I did discover the truth that when you take what's in the dark and bring it into the light, it breaks the power of the enemy to energize that sin in your life. But when we keep sin quiet and hidden and silent, it actually energizes the enemy and we are naturally going to be opposed by God because God opposes the proud. When we're too proud to get our sin into the light because we're afraid of what other people would think of us and we wear a mask and we pretend like everything's okay, you will stay in bondage in those areas. But you know what the scripture says? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves and we take what's in the dark and we bring it into the light and we say, you know what, I'm, you're gonna, you might think crazy things about me and this may change your opinion of me and all of that, but I'm desperate enough to know God and to be real and to be honest. And I need the grace of God in my life, His power and His desire to do His will. That's the grace of God. I need His power. I need His desire to do His will. So I was willing to take a risk. So I, I asked my campus pastor if we could talk I was 21 years old at the time. I had never told a single person on planet Earth what I was struggling with. I honestly thought I was the only person dealing with what I dealt with because nobody was talking about it back in 1994. So I talked to my campus pastor, and I'm cringing inwardly. I'm waiting for him to like rebuke me, expose my sin to the group, kick me out of the community for being such a wretched sinner. And so when I told him my deepest, darkest secret that I had never told any human being, he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, Linda, thank you for sharing that with me. I know that took a lot of courage. And I want you to know that doesn't change our opinion of you. We love you. We see the hand of God on your life. And we're going to get you the help that you need. That was not the response I was expecting from my campus pastor. My brain is like, tilt, 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 does not compute. That wasn't supposed to happen. I'm walking away from that conversation and I'm praying in my heart and I'm like, what was that, Lord? And I sense the Lord speak to my heart. What you just saw was a picture of my heart and how I feel about you. I love you. I'm sad that you're hurting and I want to get you the help that you need. Now, I'm so glad my campus pastor didn't respond the way some of the body of Christ are responding today. We're in a dilemma today because culture has so shifted. Back in 1994, nobody was endorsing celibate gay Christianity and saying, you can be gay, just don't act on it, but take it as your identity and all of that. And we feel like in our culture today that if 
we love people, we have to affirm them. Love is not equal to affirmation. Jesus loves us, but he doesn't affirm every desire and decision that we make, right? The scriptures tell us to speak the truth in love, and sometimes the truth is hard for us to hear. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, but he does it in such a way that it doesn't destroy us, it doesn't condemn us, it convicts us and draws us closer into God's presence. And that's how God wants to use us as agents of healing, agents of salt, agents of light in the world today, where we speak the truth with compassion without compromising the message of the gospel. But we're in a dilemma today where we feel like we just have to affirm whatever, whatever anybody says. Even if you're a Christian and you say you're going to come out as gay. I was just talking to somebody between the services and they were saying, what do I do? This person is saying, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus, but I'm gay and I'm going to find myself a partner and God loves me. Jesus is with me in the midst of what I'm going through. I'm like, that's contrary to what scripture says. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. That's what's going on today, my friends. There is deception that is infiltrating even the body of Christ. And we are being deceived into believing a different gospel that is not consistent with the word of God. And here's what the word says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, a clear reference to homosexual behavior. There's also a reference to females sleeping with other females in Romans chapter 1. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now here's the interesting thing. When we approach the topic of LGBTQ as the body of Christ today, we are kind of brainwashed into thinking, well, there's, there's all the sin that most of us deal with and then there's LGBTQ over here and it's a different category. And so we need to treat that person differently, that sin differently, that category, whatever, because it's not like everything else. But that's not the way the Bible shares it. We see in the context of all sorts of sin and brokenness, we all break in different ways, right? Some of you guys may not have dealt with gender dysphoria and same-sex attractions like I did, but some of you may struggle with greed or sexual immorality. Maybe you're addicted to pornography and you're, you're a male who's attracted to women. Maybe you deal with overeating. Maybe you deal with uh, a gossip and, and, a, and a tongue that slanders other people. But do you know what? We can all be transformed no matter what sin we're tempted by. Temptation doesn't define us. We all have different temptations, but that's not your identity just because you feel a certain desire for something. That doesn't mean anything about who you are. It just means you're human and you're fallen. We live in a fallen world. And scripture puts all of these things together in one list and says, some of you may break this way, some of you may break that way, but such were some of you. In the same way that any of us can get set free from any of the, the sins in this list, we can be set free even from those who have the desire to sleep with people of the same sex. Our desires, our fallen deceitful desires, do not define us. But there's a lie going around in our culture today 
that the Greek word behind men who have sex with men has been mistranslated as the word homosexual, and it's been inserted in the Bible, and we've been lying to people for generations, misleading people and hurting people, and the church needs to repent and update the scriptures. And that argument doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Uh, There is some truth in the fact that the word homosexual didn't exist when the Holy Spirit inspired people to write the scriptures. That's true, because the word homosexual was made up by us about 150 years ago. The concept of heterosexual and homosexual is something we came up with to try to explain sexual brokenness. Those things don't exist, they're just false categories that we have created to try to understand brokenness. But what it does is it takes an action of the body where the Bible describes the homosexual act, men who have sex with men. That's an action, it's a verb and it removes it from an action or even a desire, and now it turns it into an orientation or a state of being, a noun, the homosexual, as if that's a person and that's an identity, even though homosexual is not a term we use widely today. Most people say gay. But the idea that you have this orientation that's a state of being, and that identifies you as a person, the core of who you are, that's actually not a scriptural concept. You don't find that in the scriptures, not because God didn't know that 2,000 years into the future we'd come up with this concept of orientation. There's no such thing as a sexual orientation. You could say, I have an orientation towards murder, so I can't help it. I murder people, so sorry. I have a murderous orientation. Or I have an orientation towards lying, so I'm a lying Christian, or I'm a lustful Christian. I'm a gay Christian. Like to use those adjectives to describe what kind of Christian we are is not consistent with Scripture. We've come up with that as humans. Here's what Scripture says, Ephesians 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. I had deceitful desires. The desires were very real, but they were deceiving me. They were lying to me to convince me it is better to be a man than it is to be a woman. And that was corrupting my thinking and corrupting my sexuality. Why? Because we're spirit, soul, and body. They're all connected. So whatever you think on in your mind, your will, your emotions is going to affect even your physical body and your drives and your desires. Let me give you an example. If a little girl is sexually molested by a man, she could be five years old and she could say, you know what, men are not safe. I will never be vulnerable with a man again. Only women are safe. That is lodged in her mind as a five-year-old due to trauma in her life. When she grows up and becomes a teenager and her sexual drives and desires kick in, she still has that trauma and that thought in her mind, men are not safe. Why in the world then would she ever want to be vulnerable in a sexual way with a man if men are not safe? It will affect what we call her psychosexual development because your spirit, your soul, and your body are all connected. You can't separate them out indiscriminately. Likewise, a little boy who grows up and he is gender non-conforming. He doesn't fit the stereotype of what our culture says is supposed to be a masculine man's man. You know, works on cars, chews tobacco, you know, plays football, lumberjack, you know, ultra John Wayne masculine, right? If that little boy grows up and he doesn't have an athletic bone in his body, 
He is sensitive in his temperament. He is in touch with his emotions. He's artistic. He's musical. He's really gifted in the arts. He loves to cook instead of go outside and play. When he goes to school, what do all the little boys call him? You're a sissy. You're a girl. That is psychologically traumatic to that little boy. And he starts looking around as a five, six, seven-year-old going, what's wrong with me that I don't fit in? There must be something deficient about my masculinity. I'm not really a boy among boys. I'm more like a girl. Maybe I should be a girl. And the enemy says, oh, yes, you should be a girl. Same thing can happen with a same little boy. Grows up in a home where he is, um, doesn't fit the masculine stereotype, but his dad does. His dad is just the ultra John Wayne lumberjack kind of type, right? And he, and he doesn't seem to connect in an emotionally meaningful way with his father the way that God designed. And the father doesn't know what to do with him because he's used it with his other sons. He can go in the backyard, toss a football, baseball, whatever, and they really connect. But with this son, he doesn't know what to do, even though he loves him and he's doing his best to be a good father to him. But he doesn't know how to connect with him in a meaningful way. And that little boy can feel abandoned in his emotions. And he can feel like, I don't bond with dad the way my brothers bond with dad. There must be something wrong with my masculinity and I'm not fully man. And it can lead, leave a void in his heart for masculine love to connect emotionally with a man the way he didn't connect with his own dad. And that can lead to attractions to other men to try to meet that need subconsciously in a way that didn't get met as a little boy. It's not something he chooses. It's not something that he just goes out and says, I'm going to rebel today and go sleep with somebody of the same sex. It's something that develops over time because we are spirit, soul, and body, and you can't disconnect the three. Now, those are just a few examples. There's no formula that says, if you have these situations in your life, you will for sure develop same-sex attractions or gender confusion. There's no formula, but there are some commonalities in the ways that we see the enemy come in and derail people's sexuality. So I had this stuff going on in my own life. And scripture says, I am to put off the old self, not embrace the old self and label myself by it and say, well, I'm a transgender Christian or whatever it might be. No, I put off the old self and I am made new in the attitude of my mind. I renew my soul. I renew my mind with the word of God. I renew my mind by being around the body of Christ and receiving emotional healing for the ways that I was wounded as a child and in the context of the body of Christ, I can receive redemptive relationships that heal the hurts of the past. Because you know what? We get hurt in relationship, and we get healed in relationship. In the same way, your physical body is designed to heal itself. If you get cut or something like that, it'll heal itself. The body of Christ is designed to heal as well. And that's why we're commanded to love the orphan, the widow, the, 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 the outcast, the alien, the hurting, the afflicted because we can be agents of God's hands and feet to bring healing to those that have been wounded. And so we renew us, ourselves in the attitude of our mind, receive emotional healing, healing of the mind, healing of the soul. I received inner healing prayer as well, where the God himself came in and spoke things to my spirit that resolved lifetimes of lies in my life. For example, there was one lie I believe that it was, it was superior to be a man than a woman. And, and I, I didn't know why I had this lie. And I found out later in life 
that my mom had never told anybody, but she wanted to give my dad a son. Had never verbalized it, so I didn't know she felt that way. We found it later on in a, a pregnancy journal that she had uh, for my older sister that she wanted to give my dad a son. She had forgotten she ever felt that way. And it had never been verbalized, but somehow my spirit picked up on that and knew that I was the second child, she only wanted two kids, I was the only shot at giving my dad a son, because Nancy was a girl. And somehow, my, I believed deep down that, uh, and the Holy Spirit revealed this to us, that unless I were a boy, I wouldn't be really loved, but I couldn't be that boy because uh, God created me to be a girl. And it was just like this catch-22. And I was just feeling rejection in my spirit, even though my mom never verbalized it to me. Somehow my spirit was just sensitive and picked up on it. And so in my head, I was very confused when this came up in inner healing prayer. And, and my counselor was like, let's just forgive your mom for wanting a son. And I was like, but she never verbalized it to me. And I know she loves me. I, I, I don't think she's ever rejected. I rejected her, you know. But I thought, you know, it's not going to hurt anything just to release forgiveness towards my mom. So I said, Mom, you know, if there's anything in your heart that you wanted a son, I forgive you. I, I'm not going to hold that against you in the least. And then my prayer counselor said, all right, now let's ask Jesus what he has to say about the lie that it's better to be a boy than a girl. And this is what the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, they may want a son, but I have veto power. And you have full permission to be the woman I created you to be. And you know what? Those words of healing went deep into my soul. That was September 26, 2005. I have not had a compelling desire to be a man from that day. Because the God of the universe spoke his truth directly into my being. And I was able to soak up that truth. And the identity, my heavenly father told me who I am different than what this world was lying to me and my deceitful desires. So we, uh, we are made new in the attitude of our minds and we put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So God began to um, uh, renew my mind and transform my life so much so that you can see in this first picture on the left, I was just this androgynous, sporty kind of female uncomfortable in my own body. And he began to renew me on the inside and it even spilled out into the outside where you can see in the next picture, there's a year apart between these pictures where I went from being this androgynous, uncomfortable in my body to now I want to embrace who God's created me to be as a woman. Now, mind you, the process of discipleship is messy and it takes a long time. So even in that second picture, I was still struggling with desires to be a man. I was still struggling with attractions to women. It didn't just like flip a switch, pray away the gay, conversion therapy, whatever this world is saying about that. That's not what I went through. I went through what the Bible calls discipleship progressive sanctification that takes place over time that each day I walk with Jesus I walk further and further away from my past and the old self as I put that off and I made new in my mind in the word in the context of community and I step into the new self of who God created me to be and so he's still working on me each day I walk with him I become more and more confident in the woman he's created me to be I'm experiencing even greater attractions to men today than I did even just 10 years ago. Praise the living God. It's fun to be in the game. <laughs> and help a sister out if you know any man that's radical for Jesus in middle age. So, um, The one thing I want to say about sexual addictions uh, and attractions, transgender desires, all the stuff I'm talking about today is that at their root, it's not a sexual issue. It manifests sexually because we're spirit, soul, and body, and they're all intertwined. But at their root... Those things result from wounds of rejection and lies that become embedded in the soul. And it will begin to affect even our physical bodies and our desires and attractions. If you find yourself in any kind of addiction today, it might not be what I struggled with. Maybe you're struggling with, um, you're a man and you're, you're looking at women, pornography, you know, whatever, or vice versa, women looking at men. 
There's a great book out there I recommend called Unwanted by Jay Stringer, and it talks about how wounds of rejection can affect sexual addiction, even independent of LGBTQ stuff. If you or someone you know is struggling with LGBTQ, I recommend Restory Ministries, which is a 501c3 that we established that's officially endorsed by the Assemblies of God to help resource churches, individuals, and families regarding LGBTQ. We have a lot of resources up there that might, you might find helpful. But I want to close today with this. Um, the Lord laid on my heart the story of the woman at the well, where in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking. That's not Jesus, actually. That's just a picture I found on the internet. Just want to clarify. Um, but he's, he's sitting at this well, middle of the day, uh, when nobody else is coming out there. All the women would go in the early part of the day when it was cool to get the water from the well. But this woman comes out at high noon, and Jesus is there. And that tells us she was probably an outcast because she wasn't with all the other people. And Jesus turns to her and he says, can I have a drink? And she says, wait, you're, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. There was racism there. There were all sorts of reasons why he should not be asking her as a man, alone, with a woman, even talking to her is inappropriate, let alone asking her for a drink. And he said, uh, you know, if you knew who was asking you the gift of God and who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for living water, and he'd give it to you. And she says, well, uh, okay, so you don't have a bucket. I don't know how you're going to get water from this. Where are you going to get this living water that you can give to me so that I would never thirst again? And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this earthly water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the living water I give them will never thirst again. And in fact, it will well up within them springs of eternal life. And she says, I'd like some of that water. I'd like to not have to physically thirst again and keep coming back to this well in the middle of a hot day every day. And so Jesus sees in the moment, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was using physical thirst as an analogy. He could tell that this woman was thirsty for affirmation. She was thirsty for love. And he wanted to meet that thirst in a legitimate way. So he says to her, why don't you call your husband and come back here? And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. I'm good. I'll stay here. I'll take your water. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. So uh, Jesus says, uh, you're right in saying that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're sleeping with right now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And she says, oh, I can see you're a prophet because <laughs> he just read her mail. <laughs> Jesus called out her sin. But he did it in such a way that it drew her to hunger and thirst after something better than what her sin could offer. That's who we're supposed to be as the body of Christ. We don't ignore sin. We don't affirm it. And, oh, you do you. Be authentic, whatever. Embrace whatever. No, we, we talk about sin. We speak the truth in love. So Jesus speaks the truth in love to this woman at this well. And after that encounter with the Lord, she leaves her bucket at the well and goes into the city and tells everybody, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? He revealed himself to her as the Messiah, which he didn't do often to people. And the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus didn't come to condemn us for our sin, but to redeem us from our sin and to satisfy our thirst in legitimate ways. What are you hungering and thirsting for this morning? 
you may not have broken in the way that I did where you're hungering and thirsting after same-sex love sexually or struggling with your gender and wanting to be the opposite sex. You may not have struggled that way, but you might be struggling with sexual addictions of some kind. Uh, in fact, I had a, we were worshiping this morning and I had a picture in my mind, and I don't know if this is true or not, I could miss it. Um, I'm not saying this is for sure God, but I, I just had a sense there was somebody in the room that was struggling with those thoughts even as we were worshiping. And then there's guilt, there's shame, there's condemnation coming upon you. And like, how could I even be in the house of God thinking these things? And I just felt like the Lord wanted you to know he, he doesn't condemn you for those things. He convicts us, sure, but he doesn't condemn you. He didn't came, come to destroy you. He came to give you life. He came to redeem you and to satisfy that thirst in good ways. In fact, Psalm 107.9 says, He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. When we turn to addictions, whether it's sexual addiction, or we need, we're people pleasers and we need the praises of men, or we're shopaholics and we always got to have something new and something exciting to stir up our emotions, or whatever it might be that we struggle with, it's a false it's a false form of receiving affirmation. It's a false form of trying to meet that hunger and thirst. And you're going to have to keep going back to that well again and again and again because the thirst will never be satisfied. I discovered it didn't matter. Sleeping with another woman did not fulfill and satisfy the thirst in my soul. But when I encountered the risen Christ and he wrapped his arms around me and I felt his love in the depth of my being in a, in a tangible way. It filled that thirst of, for love and maternal love in my, my heart the way no human being ever could. I'm telling you, no matter what you struggle with this morning, God has a way to meet that thirst in a legitimate, good way. If you'll surrender it to him, if you'll come out of the dark and bring it into the light and say, here I am and I'm humbling myself. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to take what's in the dark and bring it into the light with a trusted leader, somebody who can pray with you, who can help you. I challenge you to humble yourself because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes us when we operate in our pride and we refuse to bring what's in the dark into the light. And the enemy will energize that sin that we keep in the dark. But if you'll bring it into the light, God will meet you. He will fill you. He will satisfy that thirst. He will fill that hunger with good things. Amen? Amen. God bless you. I think Vanessa's going to... Uh-oh. Somebody was going to close us. Oh, you're right there. Are you closing us? Yeah, sorry. I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to pray, and she's going to come and close us. Let's bow your heads. Why don't you pray with us? Father, I thank you for your message to us that you don't condemn us. You came to redeem us. You came to fill our thirsty souls, satisfy the hunger in our hearts with good things. And I pray for those who may be here today who have turned towards other things in this world where we look to the flesh to fill us and satisfy us instead of turning towards you. Lord, we're all guilty of it. But I thank you that you don't deny us or turn away from us in the middle of our mess. You meet us in our mess. You love us and you redeem us. As I'm praying this prayer today and every head is bowed, every eye is closed, if there's anybody here today and you're like, Linda, that's me. God has read my mail and I need help and I want to take a step today out of darkness into the light. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out or anything like that. Um, but I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer over all of us here in closing. 
And as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I'm just going to ask you if that is you and God is speaking to you today about something in your life. It doesn't have to be sexual addiction. It might be, but it might be another area where you've been looking to another human being, a a substance, um, a situation, a circumstance. If I just had more money, if I just had more beauty, if I just had more fame, if I just had whatever it might be, there's something in your life you've been looking to to fill you instead of God. And you realize, you know what, today I want to turn away from that and I want to come out of the dark into the light and, and I want to pray. I'm going to lead us all in a corporate prayer in a minute. We're all going to repeat it out loud for those who want to follow. But if that's you today and you're like, yeah, I want to come out of the darkness into the light. While every head is bowed and eye is closed, would you just look up at me if that is you and you want to pray that prayer so I just know who I'm praying with today. Is that anybody? I see those eyes. Is that anybody else? You want to come out of the dark into the light. I see those eyes. I see those eyes. Anybody else? I see those eyes. Anybody over here? I see those eyes. Amen. I see those eyes. I see those eyes. Bless you. Let's all pray this prayer. Heavenly Father. Oh, let's pray it out loud. As a, like we mean it, as a body of Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place, to pay the penalty that I owe, for my sin. I receive that free gift today. Thank you that you don't condemn me, but you came to redeem me, to satisfy my hunger, to fill my thirst with good things, with yourself. Please help me to encounter you and your love that will fill like no other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Community Church Podcast. We hope this met you exactly where you are. To learn more about us, head to our website at tccde.com or follow us on social media at Trinity Community Church. TCC, a home for you.